Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Entrepreneurs work long hours, and we always wish we had more hours in the day. My guest today will teach us strategies to implement to increase our creativity, output, make more money, and have more fun. And who doesn't want to make more money and have more fun? Josh Kaufman is the author of the best-selling book, The Personal MBA, and founder of Worldly Wisdom Ventures. He will give us the blueprint for how successful business really works, how to succeed as solopreneurs, and how we learn new skills as fast as possible. Josh, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett with guest host, Trisha Ben, Chief Community Officer, the C-Suite Network. Trisha, it's a pleasure being here. Thanks so much for the invitation. Thank you. So as executives and business owners, we're always challenged with having enough time. Um, we, we have so much we need to get done, and that is only multiplied by the adjustments that we've all made over the last few months. How can we carve out more time? What's the secret for creating that? Yeah, so uh, I love a lot of the things that George uh, was talking about in our last session because they dovetail very well. Um, there's, there's this idea in cognitive psychology uh, called monoidealism, where it's the state where you have one and only one thing on your mind at any given time. Your full focus and attention is on what you're doing and nothing else. And so uh, very, very apt uh, sports analogy. If you think of Nike's brand slogan, just do it. Like that's a, a very nice encapsulation of what monoidealism is, what it feels like. And so the question is, is how to get there. And for most of us working with others, working in companies where uh, somebody might ping you, it's like, hey, I, let, let me pick your brain. Let's, let's have a conversation. Let's have a meeting. Let's have a phone call. Uh, there's this idea in organizations called communication overhead, which is the more people that we are responsible for communicating with on a day-to-day -day basis, essentially the more connections within the organization exist and the more and more time we are going to spend communicating with other people instead of focusing on the things that we need to focus on in order to get all of our work done. So you can apply that in the personal context and you can apply that in the corporate organizational context as well. Um, in terms of getting things done for you personally, setting aside pre-scheduling large blocks of time in order to, you know, ha you have work that you need to do. There's a period of time in which you have set aside to do it. And you can temporarily put those distractions aside. Say, yes, we can have that phone call, but we can have that phone call later. Um, those types of things, blocking out time is the best thing that you can do for yourself personally. Organizationally, it gets even more effective because if you are a manager, if you're an executive, you have the power to change the structure of the working environment around you, the expectations that you bring to your team, your managers, your other executives. So some of the most effective organizations that I've worked with have made large scale changes in making this sort of behavior, having folk, have a, a period of time for focus and a period of time for communication. Um, they've made the, those sorts of changes across the board. So I've had a couple of companies say, Mornings are for focused work, afternoons are for meetings. So everyone has the opportunity to get the things done that they need to done, uh, get done earlier in the day. And then a period of time where the expectation is you're going to be available to communicate and coordinate and, and 
do the sort of knowledge work and transfer that that helps the organization uh, move forward. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I, you know, so what I'm curious about are you gave you gave one example in terms of the infrastructure of you know how you can as an executive or you know uh, the leadership team, uh, the owner, you can set the structure of times and meetings. What else can we be doing to really effectively manage that productive time? And then and then the other time that we have to 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 put into various aspects of making our businesses successful. Yeah, there's there's a number of things. Um, so so in my book we talk about um, so the the whole second part of the book is is psychology, how to manage your own psychology, how to manage uh, working with other people. And so there's there's an idea um, something that I highly recommend is most of us has have some sort of to-do list tracking system way of keeping track of of all of uh, the things that we are responsible for and that list will always be overwhelming to to a greater or lesser extent we're always going to have more more to do than we have time and capacity to do it and so aside from some very straightforward ways to manage your own psychology have a system where you write down or keep track of all of the things that you're responsible for be, have it be in a place where you can trust so you can go back and you know your mind can relax to the point of like okay everything i need to everything that's in my world is right here. I can pay attention to it. I can think about it. I can reorganize it. That's all well and good in the norm of like normal productivity practices. An easy thing that you can do to maintain this mono ideal state as you're working is don't work from that big productivity system because there's too much information there. There are too many things that can pull your focus off of what you're doing from what you should be doing. So one technique, one specific technique that, that I recommend highly um, is called most important tasks or MITs. And the general idea, this is, this is how I do it, is you have your big system and at the beginning of the day or the evening before you are working, go through that system and pick three things that would make the biggest difference in, in moving your projects forward, um, getting things off your plate, helping you maintain a positive sense of momentum. Take a three by five index card, write those three things down. And then as you're working, you don't work from the big system, that's distracting, you work from the three by five index card. And if those are the most important things in your world or in your career at that time, you can A, focus on moving those forward. That by definition, those are the things that are going to get you most of the results that you're looking for. And you get the benefit of being able to fully focus on those and not worry about all of the other distracting things that that might have your time and attention at that time. I, I love that. And I'm smiling because uh, when I first started working closely with Jeffrey, uh, he said, Trisha, what are your three to five? And I thought, are you, are you kidding me? I've got 50, you know, I've got a hundred, whatever. And, and it was that whole mindfulness practice of what are the three things, no matter what I'm going to get done, you know, that these are things I'm going to accomplish because they're the highest priority. And when you go through your to-do list, oftentimes, especially those that use, those of us that use lists, we end up having a, a checklist of things we're going to do anyway. Right. So, so get them out of your mind. I, I, I hear you loud and clear with that. Um, so as, uh, as executive leaders, as business owners, how do we really drive the, the best results in terms of, uh, the support of our teams and, and really getting them in the right mindset of how to lead success and performance in the business? Yeah. Okay. So, so a couple of things, one is 
all of these things that are good for you in managing your time and attention and energy are also good for your employees, are good for your staff, are good for your peers. And, and so anything that you can do to both help them understand how to manage their attention, energy, effort well, as well as bake into the organization as much as possible practices, systems, procedures that make it much easier for the folks you work with to do the same, that is going to be beneficial. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I'm just, I'm just curious. So, you know, you, you take hardship and challenge, how do you turn that around for them? Cause now not only do we need to be effective and efficient, but we're dealing with very real challenges that didn't yes. exist prior to the last few months. So how do we build that in Josh? Yeah. So what, one of the things that I specialize in teaching is business skills for people who um, might not have some a business background or, or, or training. And so it's important to help your employees, help your organization understand and have a common language about what it is we're doing when we're in the practice of business, what's important and what's not, and, and have a common language of talking around these important issues in a way that makes communication a lot more effective and a lot more efficient than it would otherwise be. And so uh, many of our, our listeners, listeners have probably heard of the, the 80-20 rule or the, the law of the critical few. There's a lot of things that you could focus on, that you could know, um, that you could pay attention to. But a very small fraction of those things, whether it's a business or whether it's a personal pursuit, um, are really go- going to make an enormous amount of difference in your ability to actually perform in that domain. And so what I discuss in the personal MBA is, is the, the small set of business concepts, techniques, practices, things to understand. There's not very many of them, but when you know them, when you have them in your head and you're faced with a situation, you know, whether it's a, a business challenge or an interpersonal challenge or a challenge in managing your own focus and energy and attention. Just a handful of principles make an enormous amount of difference in your ability to perform well in that domain. And and so I think one of the things that we can do for ourselves is understand what they are, how they work, how to apply them in real life situations. But as, as leaders, managers, executives, we can take an active role in the training of our people to help them understand that small set of things that make an enormous difference. And to use those principles on a day-to-day basis to take this overwhelming complexity and change that we're all experiencing and make it approachable, make it less overwhelming, make it less scary, and give, give, give you and your organization a place to start in terms of breaking down the problem and figuring out what's next. C-Suite Radio. I love where you're coming from with the, the personal MBA from the from the perspective of just because you're taught certain principles in school doesn't mean that that you are now a successful business leader. There right. are some major gaps. And, and so I, I love first just to hear, you know, uh, if you could share just how you break that down and, and, and how you uh, how you uh, educate and support business leaders to understand the difference between getting an A in school and yes. really succeeding as a business leader. Yeah, no, I I think it's important to understand that there's a big difference between credentialing and knowledge, skill, and experience. Um, So so just sitting in a classroom for a while doesn't really get you there. You have to fully understand what's going on, what's important, how to make things better. And so what I focus on in the personal MBA is uh, helping people understand this small set of 
concepts, principles, techniques that make an enormous difference. Um, and I do that in three areas. So we, we talk about principles of business, what businesses are, how they work, um, what are the essential things that um, you need to do in any business, whether you're dealing with a Fortune 500 corporation or a garage startup that you're just getting off the ground. Um, there's a way of breaking down business into value creation, marketing, sales, value delivery, and finance. And a handful of concepts in each of those areas helps you take a look at a business, understand what's going on, break it down, and change things in a way to make it better. Um, we also talk about people because businesses are created by people for the benefit of other people. And our employees, our contractors, the people that we work with, all people too. And so if you don't understand the essentials of cognitive and behavioral psychology, how people think, how people work, how they make decisions, some common mistakes or pitfalls in, in thinking that we tend to fall into, you're going to be at an enormous disadvantage when it comes to the day-to-day -day practice of business. And so understanding just a little bit of psychology goes a very long way in, in making your interactions and decisions at work more effective and efficient than they would otherwise be. And then the third part is systems. And so businesses are complex systems that operate within even more complex systems like industries and markets and societies and governments. And so understanding how complex systems come to be, how to analyze a, a system as it's working and identify opportunities for improvement, and then actually make those improvements in a way that gets you more of what you want without provoking unexpected or unanticipated consequences. Those are skills that can be learned. There are principles there that can help you do that better. And so, yeah, the, the, the whole purpose of the personal MBA in general is to take someone, even someone who has no business experience, knowledge, or training, and help them understand how businesses work, how people work, how systems work in as quick and effective a way uh, as as uh, I could make it. I, I, it's, it, it's, uh, it's fantastic because there's a practical application of what we do every day. And I think when we look at what success is, you know, how you define and provide clarity around success is with the people that you're working with, the leaders you're working with, as well as their teams. How do you do that? How do you frame that for them? Because, you know, I use that analogy of you did, you know, you got an A in class. Awesome. Did the team succeed? Right. And so right. I yeah. love to hear, how are you defining that? How are you providing clarity around what success is for the leaders you're working with and their teams? Yeah, there's, there's a, an idea that I, I talk about in the working with people section of the book called Commander's Intent, which I, I love George. George brought up uh, VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. Um, there's there's a, a long and distinguished literature understanding that things are changing around us all the time. We need to be able to deal with that. Um, one of the challenges, particularly as leaders and managers, um, we often hear about when it's done not very well, uh, micromanagement, right? So, so part of the process of, of managing this ambiguity, uncertainty, complexity, and volatility is we try to clamp down and, and have more control. We try to stay on top of people, make, give very specific directions. And if you're working with knowledgeable, skilled, uh, people, that's, that's very annoying. Um, that's, that's a good way to drive people away from wanting to work with you than instead of wanting to, to pull them towards you. And so there's an idea called, uh, that also comes from the military uh, called commander's intent. And so uh, probably easy, easiest to visualize if, if we continue with the military me metaphor, let's say a commander says, okay, squad, go over there and take that particular hill. The squad tries to do it. 
and then something changes. The enemy, I don't know, has a tank parked on that hill, and and what was the objective is no longer available. Under a micromanagement style, the squad only has one choice. It's to turn around, go back to the commander, and ask for new orders because the situation has changed. So one of the things that um, is applied to overcome the situation is, is what's called commander's intent. And that is in the process of giving an order, you're not only saying, okay, this is what I want to, to have done. You're saying, this is why I want it to be done. And this, how it, this is how it fits into the broader strategic picture of what we're doing. It's not a whole lot of additional work, but if you're able to do that, it makes it much easier for the folks who are on the ground doing the work to say, okay, situation has changed. What we're doing is either not advisable or not possible anymore, but here's another opportunity that we see in the environment that can help us accomplish the same end result. And the, the back and forth, the communication overhead that's required to do that goes down dramatically. It's, it's a wonderful technique. Just give people a little bit of context and the entire team, the entire company starts working in a, a much more effective and efficient way. Right. So in essence, you're sharing, you're, you're, you're paying a respect that shares the, the power and the responsibility of what the intent is in, in the mission to start with. Uh, I, love, I love that, Josh. I, you know, I think now with what you just said in terms of what is the intent as we strive to succeed, right? We don't want to just, we don't want to just survive. We want to thrive through the challenges we're facing now and really be set up for great success afterward. Your new book, How to Fight a Hydra. Okay. So mythological feature, you, uh, a creature, I should say, you, you cut off one head, two heads grow. Um, and, and the fear, you know, acting out of fear, acting out of a sense of, um, you know, paralysis to, to deal with the challenges and deal with the changes uh, that are happening, that can be a very real scenario for any one of us if we choose to go to that space anytime over the last several months, and we don't know what's ahead. So, so what is your biggest takeaway and, and, and sharing in terms of how we look at the scenarios of big challenges where we could go to that fear space um, and, and how we move through that, how we get to the space where we're taking action and we're moving forward and setting up for success? Yeah, yeah. So How to Fight a Hydra came out of some of the research that I was doing around specifically VUCA. Uh, so uncertainty, ambiguity, change, variability. And um, the, the mythological Hydra with, with many heads that you're trying to fight all at once, I think is, is a really nice encapsulation of how overwhelming some of this, this very often feels. Uh, particularly if something unexpected happens, like has happened in the world uh, in, in recent months, or it also happens when we are signing up to do something that we know in advance is going to be difficult. That, you know, so if you're starting a company from the ground up, there's a certain amount of, of big, scary ambiguity and complexity that no matter how much you research, no matter how much you plan, no matter how much you try to mitigate some of the changes that you might see, like it's always going to be there. And so I think the, the two top line things that I can give is just recognizing that at the beginning goes a long way into resolving some of the mental and emotional angst that's wrapped up into dealing with the situation. If you spend a lot of time wishing or feeling like it shouldn't be this way, the world should be different. I shouldn't have to you know, have all of these bad feelings or, or deal with this uncertainty. You're just piling up 
effort and, and, and bad feelings on top of something that's already difficult. So just recognize the reality of the situation and let that go. The other part is, is that um, in these big complex projects, there's very often a feeling like we, we want to make as much progress as we can, as fast as we can. And you just, you just plow forward on unheeding sometimes just trying to knock things off. Um, if you remember, you know, going back into Greek mythology about uh, Hercules fighting the Hydra, um, Hercules didn't just take a sword and lop off all of its heads and it, it was done because if you don't take a moment to apply a torch to the stump, two more heads grow in its place. This is a very apt metaphor for the, a lot of the problems we find ourselves in now and with complex organizations. It's a two-step process. So the, the first step is, yes, swing the sword, make, make some effort, do the thing. And after you do that, take a moment to assess and consolidate the results of your effort before you go on to the next challenge. Um, and in the context of business, that can look like a lot of different things. That can look like reviewing the results of, of things you tried, experiments you did, things that worked well and didn't work well. So you can theoretically keep doing the things that are working and stop doing the things that, that aren't. But then it's also in the context of an organization, it's a time to capture what you've learned in the process of doing this. Um, because eventually, if the, the organization lasts long enough, someone else who is not you will be managing things around this project. You need to help educate them and help them understand why you made the decisions that you made, what was important, why you made the choices. And, and just taking a little bit of time and effort, um, even on a personal level, like going back to our, our personal productivity conversation, I am a huge advocate of keeping a daily log of things that you've done. Not, not a to-do list, things that you are going to do, um, a, thing, a, a list of as, in as accurate and, and as much detail as possible. Uh, things, uh, things that actually happened during the day, decisions that you made, conversations that you had, things that you wondered, because that process helps you consolidate the results of your effort and learning and make much better decisions. It kind of ties into your, uh, what you share as a takeaway is oftentimes we overlook the most valuable advice because it's not sexy. I mean, it isn't sexy to sit and take notes on the decisions you made in a day. Uh, that's not a sexy piece of advice, Josh. I, I don't know if you knew that. I hate to break it to you, but, I'm well aware. <laughs> but, but how true is that? There's so many things that, that it's not sexy, but you get it done. And wow, the great things can come from that. So, so what are some other pieces of advice that you think really are great that we just tend to overlook? Yeah, uh, there's there's a number of things. Um, I, I think th it's it's the through line of my work in general in the in the personal MBA, the first twenty hours on how to fight a Hydra. That if you if you define it, it what it is exactly you want, and you go after that directly instead of looking for a proxy, looking for something that makes you look good, um, looking that uh, something that. Um, might be valued by other people, very often you can get a much better result. And, and so in the personal MBA, uh, a lot of that revolves around business school. And, and I'm, I'm mindful of, we're speaking to an audience where a lot of people have had that experience and that's awesome. And, and when you, if, if someone is learning business for the first time or trying to do a refresher, instead of focusing on something like a credential, which is respected by other people, highly valued, people will make people think of you differently. If you're willing to leave that aside just for a moment and just say, okay, 
if business knowledge and skill is what I'm after, I'm going to find a way to, to, to learn about business in a more direct way. That's great. Um, the same thing for uh, the first 20 hours, which is a book I, I wrote about skill acquisition, learning how to do new things. Uh, very often early in the process, we're too wrapped up in the idea of being good, of you know having a certain level of performance that unless I'm able uh, to, to function at that level, I'm really embarrassed. I don't want to see anybody, uh, have anybody see me do this. I don't want to, to talk about it. And in the early hours of practice of doing something you've never done before, if you're terrible and you probably will be, there's the sense of like, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not good at this. I, 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 this is not for me. I'm not cut out for it. I'm not talented. I should stop. If you're able to push yourself just a little bit, just a few hours into the actual, what will actually make you better at, at whatever it is you're practicing, doing the thing, doing it in a skillful, mindful way, you'll become much, much better very, very quickly. And just being willing to step away from the, I need to look good to myself and to other people all the time makes it much, much easier to do the things that will actually produce skill, that will actually produce knowledge and experience. And those are the things that allow you to perform at a very high level over a long period of time. Um, we're going to go to questions with Greg in just a minute. So make sure you get your questions going. Just really quickly, Josh, what you're tying into in terms of how we learn, I can't help but think to how that does create that moment that you can just be in. Yeah. Um, that, that, uh, that, that taking away that drive and that sense of having to be perfect at everything we do as, as essentially a waste of time, (laughs) um, and, and, and getting really focused in on, um, you know, the authentic, the authenticity of the experience as well. So that when others see that you're struggling to learn something, you're going through the process everyone else has, they can relate to you. And I'm just curious, and just, just really quickly before uh, Greg takes over with all kinds of great, great questions, how you help the leaders you work with embrace that experience of being a neophyte uh, at whatever it is to, to break through and also create connection. Yeah, there is a, there's an idea that I talk about in the first 20 hours called the frustration barrier, which is this, this very reliable, repeatable experience of it's usually rule of thumb hours one to four or one to five of practicing anything very frustrating to adult learners. And, and that's, and and because of a lot of the messages that, that we've received around what, what skill looks like, what talent looks like, um, is, is skill something you're either born with or something that develops over time. That's the point where it's frustrating enough that most people want to quit way too early. And so that frustration is a very real barrier that gets between us and how we want to be able to perform in the future. And so the reason the first 20 hours is called the first 20 hours is one of the techniques that really helps with this is the, the idea comes from uh, cognitive psychology. It's called a pre-commitment. And so um, for, for most skills, and this is you know, physical skill, mental skill, work skill, personal skill, doesn't matter. If you pre-commit to a certain amount of time before you start practicing, a couple of wonderful things happen. Um, first, it's the best way that I found to overcome the frustration barrier. And so in the midst of, you know, you doing this thing and it being super terrible and, and, and you want to quit, you can say to yourself, I've committed to practicing this skill for a certain number of hours, for, for 20 hours. If I'm terrible when I get to 20 hours, 
If I hate it, if I never want to do that again, I have full permission to move on after I've reached that point. But until I reach that point, I'm going to keep going. And so what I find when I work with people is that the frustration, the inevitable frustration barrier rears its ugly head in the early hours. And then somewhere around hours, usually five to six, give or take, you start seeing results. You start seeing yourself performing in a way that you have never been able to perform before. And there's some intrinsic excitement uh, from that. And, and the rest of the time goes much better. And, and by, by hour 10, hour 20, you're way better than you expected you would, you would ever be able to be. It just took that pre-commitment to get past the frustration barrier and practice long enough to see a result. Great, great frameworks and, and ones that we can also use with our teams to help them work through uh, changes and, and adaptations. C-Suite Radio. Greg, I know there are lots of great questions. Over to you. Yeah. Um, Claudia Harvey in our chat says that she's been logging her business since it started. She has 12 journals. Can you just talk a little, a little bit about the best way? I mean, she is extreme, but you were talking about uh, managing off index cards, which I know Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan Chase does. Mm-hmm. People say that the entire financial system is managed out of the index cards in his, in his pocket. But yeah. there's got to be a happy medium somewhere in between what Claudia does uh, of, of writing it down, you know, like uh, it's almost uh, like a scribe or a Talmudic scribe. And somewhere between what Jamie Dimon does is really distill it into index cards. What do you suggest for the rest of us? Yeah, so so I would recommend um, digital or or handwriting doesn't matter. I've I've done both. Um, I think of it just as a, a bulleted list, and so put the date at the top, and then for everything that you do in the course of a day, at a slightly higher level of abstraction. So you know, if if you're going through your email inbox, you don't need to notate every uh, email that you delete or archive or, or things of that nature. It's too much detail. But any major decision or progress on a project that you're working on, just put a sentence or two about exactly what you did. Here's what I accomplished. Um, and the same thing goes for major decisions. So you don't have to notate where you chose to go for lunch, too much detail. Um, but in terms of, you know, had, had a one-on-one discussion with, with one of my direct reports, Here's what we talked about. Here's what what they committed to for our our next conversation. That level of detail is 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 right about right. And when you go back and you read those logs, in Claudia's case, should you be kicking yourself over over bad decisions made, or you should be learning lessons? Don't do this again. Or should you be proud of yourself and say, "This is what I did in the moment," as George Mumford said previously. I went with the flow. It went wrong this time, but maybe I'll make the shot next time. How should you approach your past? Yeah. So 90% feeling good and proud of yourself about the things that you accomplished. And so part of, part of the process of logging, one of the benefits that you get from it is it's very easy to fall into the mentality of success is when my to-do list is finished, when everything is off the list, when I have no more outstanding commitments. And if that's, if that's what is required in order to feel good about your day, you're never going to get there. You're, you're just signing yourself to, to, up for feeling frustrated at the end of every day. And so because of the volatility, because of the uncertainty, because of the change, sometimes what we planned to do in a day and sometimes what we actually get done in a day are substantially different. And it can also be true that the things that you got done that day were valuable, were important, were responding to the change in volatility that you're seeing in the world. 
And so you get an immediate benefit from logging by just, just giving yourself credit for all of the things that you actually did to push the ball forward during a day. And then on a review standpoint, either you know every week or every month, if you have a, a weekly or monthly review practice, just go back and look at all of the things that you did. And part of that is looking back at past decisions and learning, did this move, move us in the right direction? Was, were there things that I should have been looking for? Were there things that I should have been changing? Not to feel bad about making mistakes, because that's, that's the thing that we are not going to be able to, uh, to eliminate from our life. Making mistakes is a part of learning. But you can go back and say, okay, in the future, when I'm in a situation like this, or when I see something like this cross my desk, here's what I did last time and here are the things that I wish I did and here are the things that I can learn for future scenarios, that's where the benefit of, of reviewing your log comes in. Nice. All right, so uh, with George, we, I was using a lot of sports metaphors, but you used a military metaphor in terms of commander's intent and taking that hill. If there's a, a tank on that hill, you're going to get shot at. Um, so here's the thing about commander's intent, though. If you let the troops decide to a certain extent, aren't you creating a whole lot of commanders? And that gets to a brand new uh, metaphor is, don't too many cooks spoil the broth? Yeah, I I think there's always, um, this is an idea that I talk about towards the end of the personal MBA. It's a really old idea. It goes back to Aristotle. Um, He had this idea called the, the middle path or the middle way, or um, it, in, in, as he was writing, it was, it was uh, phrased virtue is the mean between two extremes. And so if you think about it from a commander's intent perspective, uh, there is a difference between complete and total micromanagement specifying in computer code levels of detail who will do what, when, and why, and then extreme anarchy levels of, of self-determination, right? So if everybody does whatever they want, whenever they want to, you don't have the central coordination in order to get some of these, these more complex projects done. And so I think this is one of the things that makes business more of an art than it is a science. Um, there are there are repeatable principles. There are things that we can learn. There are ways of organizing things that we know are effective. And this is where judgment and experience and skill come in. And so you know, going back to the military metaphor, this is why you might have a general and then a commander that has a squad of units. The commander handles the ground level things, knowing what the general is trying to do. And there's still a point of central coordination and communication. So all of the folks on the ground aren't necessarily talking to the, the, the general all the time. There's a, there's a way of managing the communication overhead that keeps everyone on the same page with as little back and forth that is required given the circumstance. Does that make sense? Yeah, you need to give people some kind of, uh, of freedom to make decisions you know, you know, without, without creating anarchy. I mean, yes. You're saying is it, it, there's a, you know, you have to navigate that. Yeah. And there's, there's also quite a bit of research and it's, it's been done both on the military side, but, but think like elite teams of, of all levels, surgical teams, um, folks who are responsible for a very clear objective. Like what is the team size that, that lends itself to every team member improves the capacity and the ability of the group to get the work done. But then also you're not adding so many team members that they're spending most of their time talking to each other. And that's why you see in elite teams, um, they, they tend to be around the seven plus or minus two area. Um, so you have a small dedicated team who is, is responsible for and skilled at a particular deliverable. 
And then you give them as much autonomy as possible, um, understanding the intent of, of the folks they're working with to, on what the job is and what's important in getting it done. I'm not sure the CEO that said it, but someone said that you shouldn't have a meeting with more people than it would take to split a pizza. I guess there's eight slices of, of pizza needs pizza. So yeah, that was Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos. Okay. Yeah. So um, would you go along with that? So basically small teams are better? Yes. Uh, 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 as many focused surgical teams as you can make with as much autonomy as you can give those teams, um, that tends to be in, in all sorts of different domains of, of, of human skill and expertise. Uh, that tends to be the happy medium. Um, and I, I think there's, there's a little bit of a mindset thing that is, is important to understand here, which is, is that I think the traditional view of executive management is, is the idea of like you have a big, smart person or group of people in the center of the organization, and then everyone else is responsible for executing on the decisions that are made in all the way down the chain. There's another way of, of looking at it, which is you want the people who are doing the work, who are creating value for your business, who are bringing in new customers, who are attracting attention, making customers happy, and making sure the dollars and cents make sense. You want to have those people have as much knowledge, skill, experience, domain expertise as they can possibly have. And then management in this conception becomes a support function. It becomes making sure that those, uh, those people, those skilled professionals have what they need in order to get the job done. And very often in that sort of, of conception of a, or, or business structure, very often the people who have the domain expertise, who are looking at the problem, who, who know the range of potential solutions, they're probably in a much better position to make a decision about path A versus path B, B versus path C than a CEO or a CMO uh, or a COO might be. And, and so, yeah, it, it really depends on the context, on the organization, what the expectations are and how it's structured. But I think as much as possible, pushing the decision-making down to the levels where people have domain experience is a very valuable thing to do. In the current environment, you know, it, it's hard to stand out in a Zoom call. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to your personal MBA days when you, know, you want to show everyone else, if you're the brand manager at P&G, you want to show everyone else how great, how great you are. Everyone's not in one big meeting in an office where you can raise your hand and wow the boss. You know, everyone, as we are right now, we've got about 50 or, or more, actually well more than that, you know, folks who are popping up on Zoom. So can you just talk about, um, from back from your personal MBA days, how do you stand out in a Zoom goal? Yeah. So it's, um, I think Zoom is an interesting environment because of how freeform it is. I mean, uh, it, it, there's, there's, you have all of the downsides of a big corporate boardroom meeting without any of the benefits of interpersonal communication, signaling back and forth, those, those sorts of things. I think organizationally speaking, because of the current environment, because we're, we're dealing with each other remotely more often, Zoom is a tool. It is not the only tool. And um, one of the most potent tools that people who are working remotely, either by choice or by circumstance, have at their, their disposal is writing. And so you mentioned uh, Jeff Bezos earlier. Um, there's also one of the things that um, he has used quite a bit to very good effect 
is that there's a culture of written communication and written decision making up to the highest levels of the organization. Because when when you're when you're working with other people remotely, being able to work walk them through a process of decision making. Here's what we're looking at. Here's exactly uh, the the options we considered. Here are the pros and cons of each. This is the one we recommend, and here's why. That's much easier to do in a written document than it is in a Zoom call where you might not have the floor for a long enough period of time in order to make that full case unless unless it's set aside for you. And so I think most organizations would benefit from a lot more written documentation, written cases being made for certain things, written decision-making, both because it tends to lend itself to going back to commander's intent, a clarity of thought, a clarity of process, a clarity of why we're doing the things we're doing in a way that sticks around longer than a Zoom meeting. And then if you're able to do that, if you're able to, to produce this thing that people can read, can pe- that people can look at, and then reference that on a Zoom call, you've added a lot of context to what would other, otherwise be a very transient conversation. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And you've actually added a whole lot of context and information to a wonderful group that's come along to listen to you. So thank you very much. That's going to conclude the, the Q&A. I'm going to turn it back to Tricia. Josh, I want to thank you for joining us for Old Business today. Uh, what, what great insights we have and different pieces that we can absolutely put in play in our business every day. So uh, I want to thank you again uh, for spending this time with us today. Thank you so much, Tricia. It's been a pleasure to be here. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.